trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about self-harm, suicide and physical violence. The guest also references a racist slur they received whilst growing up, so some listeners may find these experiences distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Mic, a bent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. Gospel music has produced so many of music's biggest stars, from the likes of Aretha Franklin, Katy Perry, Tina Turner, Whitney Houston to John Legend and Lou Rawls. All of them started out their singing careers in the church choir. In this episode, I'm checking in with a UK gospel artist who has been on an unbelievable journey. His name is CJ, or as he is otherwise known, Saint CJ. In this episode, we discuss CJ's faith, the concept of suppression within faith and religion, mistakes, his experiences of being sectioned as a teenager and how he turned his life around. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the mic with Saint CJ. CJ, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and giving your precious time of your Sunday to come and talk to me. First off, how are you getting on, bro? Very, very good, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Uh, existing at the moment. I think existing is the phrase I use a lot. So gospel music is something I've dabbled in a lot when it comes to house music. My love for house music is great and very extensive. So I'm really excited to get to know you and to get to know gospel music and what the sounds that you produce and also your mental health journey. So shall we just crack on with the show, mate? Let's start the pod, mate, by talking about your journey as Saint CJ. But before we do that and go into more depth... Why don't you tell me first how your love affair with music started? Who were some of the artists you listened to growing up? What impact did they have on you and your mental health? And then what age you were when you first started singing or playing instruments? Okay, such a a lot of questions. Uh, Try to take them one at a time. So I grew up on music from about the age of like 10 years old. My mum said I was a very excitable kid from young and I was always running around, dancing around, singing around. She's like, we need to just get all of this energy out. (laughs) <laughs> make it productive because it's giving a headache so my brother my big brother said I'll take a performing arts school so from 10 up until now I was involved in performing arts school uh, singing and dancing and acting and I just loved it uh, it's just something that I thought I was born to do and it's something that I, by nature I just really fell in love with and yeah from about 10 till even 18 there was a lot of musical influences in my ears before I started making my own music and getting a bit more creative. So I grew up on like Stevie Wonder, Lauren Hill, a lot of the soul heads, like a lot of the soul heads and even like Bruno Mars. And then my love for even like gospel music. And then that whole journey came when I uh, became a Christian at 15. And then I was just like, I don't really know much about Christian music and gospel music. I don't really know what this whole thing is. And then I came across people like Kurt Franklin I was like, Kurt Franklin is wicked. And then people like Lecrae, who's, who was a Christian hip-hop. And I didn't even know that you could do hip-hop, which was godly or gospel, because the only hip-hop I knew 
was like Biggie and these man, they weren't really talking about godly things. So I was just like, okay, this is interesting, this is different. And then from there, I just fell in love with it even more. And my journey just grew and grew and grew and grew. And then how it came into my life, music, was really, it's funny because I never really saw myself becoming a singer or doing music as a recording way. My brother would always put me in studios and stuff like that, but I kind of saw myself doing that more like performing arts in theatres and West End and kind of like more that kind of way. And I was more into acting when I was younger, a lot more. And then the recording artist came when I felt like I wanted to use my voice and my expression to do something. I wanted to be impactful. I knew that music, recording music, was something that was very impactful and influential. And there's a way that I could share just what God had done in my life and the experiences that I had and my real life expression and yeah, the things that I go through in a way that really made sense to me. I felt that music was my best form of communication, even beyond words. So yeah, that's how I kind of all started and here I am now. I've been singing since I was 10 years old and yeah, I'm 20 now, so it's quite a few years now. When it came to your stage name, mate, tell me the story behind it. I presume it has religious connotations, but does it hold any particular meaning for your mental health as well? Yeah, so Saint CJ, it's so funny because it didn't start off as being anything that meaningful. Me and my friends had this little group called The Saints. And it was just a fun little thing we did in like youth church. <laughs> and we just made this song. And the song was quite, it was very corny, but it was quite fun. And it was called The Saints. And we put little, you know, we did it ourselves. We recorded it ourselves. We produced the beat. And with all of us, it was me and my two friends that actually introduced me to church and everything called Alfred and George. So it was me, Saint CJ, Saint Alfred and Saint George. So there was the three of us and we would do this little thing. And then sometimes in church, we'd perform it together and just a little bit of fun. And then they ended up not having keeping the name. So they ended up keeping their own things. So Alfred became Alfred Cox because he became a barber. And then George became G-Shop because he became a producer. So I was like, okay, well, I'm the only one with the name now. He kind of left me out here by myself. <laughs> what am I going to do? Am I just going to change my name? And I changed my name to CJ Owen, actually. And then I was like, I don't know if I like it. And then I was thinking, well, CJ is actually Callum J. My name is Callum and my middle name is J. So J is actually part of the name. So I thought, okay, what can I do? CJ, and then I could potentially keep the saint. And then I guess as I grew in my faith, it was more meaningful, the saint CJ, because saint actually means someone that is a child and a chosen person of God who has a purpose and a calling for the purposes of God. And I felt, well, that's what I want to be. And I want people when they see me to recognize who I represent, what I represent. Well, that saying CJ did the best way of doing that. So it didn't start off as meaningful, but as I grew in my faith, it was it became very meaningful and now is very meaningful today. Like you said, the word saint is usually reserved for disciples of Christ or children of Christ or higher mate. Given that, did you ever feel any hesitancy in using it as your alias? Because people might think you're self-aggrandizing yourself or maybe holding yourself to a higher status than perhaps you were. Does that make sense? Mm. To a degree, I feel not really. Because when people would, when they would ask me, okay, why are you called Saint CJ? What's the whole saint thing? I would say, well, I'm a saint by the grace of God. And I feel like I didn't want to feel... When I say in saint, I'm saying I'm holy than thou and oh yeah, I'm better than you. It was just because when you are now someone that follows the Lord, I believe that you're no longer like a sinner anymore. I believe that when you become a Christian and you're a child of God, your old life is wiped away and now you're like affirmed and loved by God. 
so you don't have to feel ashamed by your past or your past mistakes and that's what it also represents like a newness of life and me coming into a new place because I'm no longer the guy I used to be before I knew Christ I'm now a new person with a new heart with a new mind with a new confidence with a new joy I feel like it represents that so anybody that would to think oh yeah you do think you're better than everyone it's actually quite the opposite I know that I'm not and I know that without God I wouldn't be any better than anybody else and I still am not anybody better than anybody else it's literally by the grace of God that I am even the person I am today so that's what I want to represent yeah representative of the God that has changed my life that's how I see it and for anyone who hasn't heard your music CJ how would you describe it for the listeners sell it to them if you can Okay, so then, rah. <laughs> I would say that my music is, I don't have a particular genre. I like all genres. Even house. I'm trying to get into house. I like house music a lot. Don't get into that. <laughs> but I would say it's joyful, it's catchy, and it's a vibe. That's what I say. I just want people, when they listen to my music, whether it's a ballad or a deep song or a moving song, or if it's like a catchy, up-tempo hip-hop song, I want people to catch something from it and I want them to feel joy. I want them to feel like they can overcome. I want them to feel motivated to get through every day and get through in their lives, to thrive. And also to, yeah, to have fun, to get up and dance. I always want to make people feel like they're having a good time when they listen to my music, as well as take a real deep, meaningful message from it as well. It's great to hear that you're getting more into uh, Gospel House, man. I'll, I'll send you some recommendations after we finish the pod. When we spoke off air, you told me how you've managed to get a lot of great opportunities through music so far and perhaps go through loops that others might not have been able to jump through because people believed in you so much. Do you recognise that privilege? Are you self-aware of it to accept it with humility? And, and how grateful are you for those opportunities? 100%. I can never say that, oh yeah, I got it on myself or just because I'm talented. Really, it's just because I've had the right connections at the right time and the right opportunities and the people that have believed in me. And yeah, I'm humble enough to say that. I think a lot of artists are like, oh, I'm self-made or I'm independent. You're not really. Like, nobody's independent. Even independent artists are not independent. And this whole independent artist chasing thing, I think it's tedious. Because why are you ashamed that you had people that helped you on the road? If you're an artist that you said you're independent, but you had a producer that made you a beat, you're not independent. The producer made you that beat that made you your song go off and blow up. If you had someone mixing your vocals, if you had someone recording your video, you're never independent unless you're telling me you recorded it, mixed it, produced it, filmed it, plugged it all yourself. Then you're okay, you're independent. But otherwise, you're not. I'm unashamed to say I've got a team, I've got a manager, I've got people that support me, I've got a writing staff, I've got a lot of people that have helped me to be the man I am today and to be the artist I am today. And I can never say I'm self-made. Yeah, so I'm very grateful for those opportunities. And I'm humbled because I think to myself that it could have been anybody that these people believed in, but they decided to believe in me. And I'm very grateful and I always count my blessings. So you have to always count your blessings. But yeah, I've definitely pushed through hurdles and I do things that a lot of people at my age don't do. And I think I sometimes lack gratitude for that. Sometimes I think that, oh yeah, because I've got a lot of mentors that are really big and doing a lot of big things. I forget that they're at a different stage in their life to me sometimes. I think that like, yeah, but CJ, you're just at the beginning of your journey. Like these guys have been in this game for years. They've been doing it for 10 years or something and you're looking at them like, yeah, I want to be there. And it's motivation, but I always have to remember like, now you're on your own journey and you have to know that where you're at right now is a privilege and you're, all you're going to do is get better as you continue to grow and be consistent and be humble. Yeah, those three keys are important. You talked about positive mentors there. 
But on the flip side of it, there will always be people on anyone's journey who will try and bring you down or dismiss your ability. This is not just the case for music either. How do you deal with that when it comes to your mental health? As there was one particular person you looked up to when we spoke off air who was a bad example of this, wasn't it? Yeah, so I'm learning and I've learned to deal with it a lot better. I think that before I had this mentor or had individuals in my life on a whole that didn't really believe in the vision and didn't believe in my purpose or my calling or what I was meant to do, I didn't take to heart that well. I think I'd struggled. Many times when you look up to someone or many times when you wanna, you find someone very close to you, when they do not agree with your decisions, there's like this struggle. It's like maybe when you know people's parents don't believe in their career choices or whatever, or your friends don't believe in your business choice or anything like that. So I think at first I did struggle because I think I cared too much about people's opinions and I lived too much for the value of other people. And from those circumstances, situations where the people that didn't support me I decided to not listen and follow what I was meant to do. And I'm now seeing the fruits of just following what I knew was to be my purpose. I've realized to let go of people's opinions. And now, even though sometimes it still is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a sensitive area in terms of like when people don't support, I'm not beat down by it. I just take it on the chin and say, okay, cool. Well, that's your opinion. I appreciate it. I'll take it humbly on, but this is what I know I'm meant to do. And I've learned that I cannot live for anybody's approval in this life. Even my closest people, even people I work with, even my friends, even my family, you know what, what? I can't live to please them because I will literally, um, there's a parable in the Bible that says, if you live for the approval of others, you will die to their criticisms. And it's so true. Everybody's got something to say, no matter what it is. So you've got to live for what you know to be the truth that you feel like the Lord has said to you. And even what you just know in your heart of hearts to be the truth. And you follow that, you can't live to please everybody because you just can't please everybody. And it doesn't mean that you don't take on people's opinions, but you have to just be able to know, okay, discern, okay, what is the right thing <laughs> to listen to? So yeah, I've learned a lot from the experience, yeah. But it wasn't easy. It's great to hear that you've got so many good mental tools and techniques out of that event, mate. You've made a positive out of a negative. When you spoke to me off air, you told me that the event itself almost made you question your belief in God a bit, as well as negatively impact your mental health. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so last year I went through a severe church hurt. I mean, it was very traumatic. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say it wasn't. I think that I have to be very real. Because um, when you're real and you're transparent and you're honest, it brings a lot of healing to people and even to yourself. So yeah, I was very traumatic. I think having a mentor and having an experience whereby you look to someone and you expect them to conduct themselves in a certain way and act a certain way and they don't act that way and actually act polar opposite to what you'd expect. It kind of makes you think, rah, well, if I want to be a leader one day in the same kind of context, how can I follow this example? And it's crazy when you address these things and they just push under a rug. I think that was the hardest thing. I think when you said that these things are not right, this is not good what's happening but it's been pushed under the rug. So what I went through, I went through a very big disagreement with one of my leaders in my community. He basically said that my dream to do music and to use music to share the gospel was a waste of time. It wasn't gonna work, it's rubbish. And I should just do something that's more meaningful, something that actually is worthwhile. And even that music will not last, even money-wise, you won't make enough money from it. So it was just completely just, just cutting down any form of dream or vision I had for myself. And then in terms of doing things within church and being involved in my community, that was stripped from me. 
because I was told I was not a good example to my community because I wasn't doing what I, you know, what the, <laughs> the leader wanted me to do. I just didn't really understand it. I was just really confused. And then there was a lot of words that were spoken, which were very cold and very callous. There was many times where there was a lot of things in terms of even physical and emotional violations that just shouldn't have happened. And I won't mention too much because I don't want to, I believe in honouring people as well. And now our relationship is a lot better than it used to be. And that's just through healing and forgiveness. And forgiveness is the most beautiful tool in the world. It really heals you from a lot of things. If I was still angry and bitter, I don't think I would have been able to move on in my journey. So I had to learn to forgive and let go. And I'm grateful that we've been able to do that. But yeah, there was many times where even things that happened publicly, like public humiliations in front of my whole congregation. And then you say to people, like, did you see what happened? Did you see the fact that he told me not to talk to anybody or pray for anybody? And it's just like, oh, no, you're misunderstanding the situation. Maybe it was an accident, you know, da 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 da, -da. And you're thinking, these are, my, these are your friends. These are people that you look up to, these friends that you are close to. And they just push your feelings under the rug. But I just have to learn again to just, you know, people make mistakes and that Christians are not Christ. <laughs> the church is not God. <laughs> They're two different things. And unfortunately, they should be the same thing. But many times they're two different things because human beings are imperfect. But I believe God is perfect. So if you look to God more than you look to people, you'll find Christ a lot better personally. And I've learned to do that. Doesn't mean that I don't <laughs> have friends that are Christian. I don't go to church. I do still go to church. I still am very involved in my community now. But it was a process of healing and realizing that I can't hold people to the same standards as I hold God because God will never let me down. God is faithful. God is good. But people might not be. But that's okay. Because it doesn't mean that I'm going to make my heart bitter and my heart cold to still not love people and show people the love and try and be the best Christian that I can be. You know, it even inspired me. Even though I went through a really hard faith journey, when I was praying again, I said, God, I want to be the best Christian to people because I don't want to make anybody feel how I felt. I don't want anybody to feel that they are not wanted or not loved. When I left my old community, I was told I can't come back. And that was a really thing in my mind that I just couldn't resonate because I'd been there for so many years. That was like my home. Like imagine going to like your second home, you go away to uni and you come back and they say, oh, no, you can't, no, you can't come back into the home. Like It's just... This is my home though, this is where I grew up in. So um, I just wanted to say, I never wanted to experience what I experienced or anyone else to experience what I've experienced. But it was very growing. I think it taught me a lot about myself. And really, I think when you go through situations like that, it really does test if you believe in what you believe in, if your faith is really strong. Because when you've been hurt by people that are supposed to represent what you believe in, can you still hold on to that? It's like when you hear these stories, horrible stories of Christians that do wicked things to people. And you think, well, that's not what my God does. That's not what my, my Bible says to you to do. But you just have to reconcile it and say, they're people. They're people that are very, by nature, very fallen and make mistakes. And none of us are good. None of us are perfect. So we can never judge one person and say, oh, that person is horrible. But you could easily do the same thing. If I had a different position, I could have done the same thing. But I'm grateful I didn't. It's really great to hear that when we spoke off air, you found a new church which enabled you to find that focus and properly support your journey as an artist, create new friends, new connections. It's how we're speaking right now. Can you tell me about the story now behind your first ever Saint CJ performance? You know, where was it? How did it go? And what was your mental process like before, during and after you came off stage? Ooh, first Saint CJ. Da, 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 da. Okay. Hmm. I guess my first major performance after getting signed was a show called Grand Roots. So this was like a big event 
with like everybody in my scene like everybody all the goats that i looked up to people i had gone to their concerts to watch them they were there sharing stage with me and i was just like whoa and it was all the old school to the new school heads of the like gospel uk gram scene it's been around quite a lot even though it's quite underground it has been around for quite a while so that was crazy and i remember just getting on there performing my new single and that which was dropping that day it was the 31st of january and i just got signed maybe a couple months earlier so i just got signed fresh new artists before my fresh single and everybody loved it and everybody was streaming it and it just blew up over like a day i think i got like a thousand streams in a day which is major for me as an artist to get that it's crazy and then it just kept going and i was like it keeps it keeps going up it's keeping going up it's keeping going up it was just crazy it was such a humble experience but they loved it everyone supported it and i remember even sharing the stage with some people that I've gone to concert with. And I was just like, this is insane. And a lot of my friends came from the Midlands to watch. A lot of my friends from all over the place. And they were just like, wow, CJ, you, you know, we've seen you go from like, okay, you're on this journey in music to really getting signed. And now you're really doing something big with this, with this whole music journey and this music career. And it really made me believe that this is what I was meant to do. There's sometimes where as an artist, you feel like, oh, is this really working? Can this really last? Because you don't see the immediate fruits. When you're consistent and you start seeing that people believe in you and they Instagram you and they say, right, this song helped me through the darkest season in my life or this song helped me feel like I could get through another day or this song helped my family member or just different things that you think, wow, this, this song stopped me from... Even I've had someone say from committing suicide. And I'm just like, wow, the weight that my music has to do that on someone, to stop somebody committing suicide is immense. I cried. I was just like, wow. I can never stop doing what I'm doing because it's helping people that I didn't even know. Someone in a whole nother country in America, people from Costa Rica saying that, yeah, you know, your music really has helped my family through a real hard time. It's just grateful. So I think that made me believe in what I was doing. And when I got off the stage, I just thought of, wow, this is really impactful. Even though I was so fresh, even though it was so new, I was just like, yeah, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. And I went on a different tangent, but I guess it just flowed into that. But yeah, that performance was insane. And from then, never wanted to stop performing, man. Kept going. I don't know how many performances I've done now. I feel like it's been a, it's been a few. <laughs> Every artist, mate, normally has one, two, or even three or ten multiple bad performances in their careers too, CJ. So we can normalise making mistakes for our listeners and learning from failure. Is there one story you can share with me? And most importantly, what did you learn from it? Yes. There is uh, many, <laughs> many, 10, 20, 50. <laughs> to be honest, I feel like I make a mistake in probably every lab performance that I do, but I just style it out. I style it like there's been, oh my days. Uh, I don't even know what to pick. It's so many. It's <laughs> I'll do one from like recently. I've got ones from when I was like a kid, like in performing arts school, you know, you fall over, you trip up forget your line, you stutter. Yeah, I'll do one. I don't know if this was a crazy mistake. Okay, cool. I was at a university, big up University of West London. I do a lot of shows there. So I'm doing a show and 
<laughs> I must have been, um, yeah, just dancing around. I love to move around when I do my performances. So I'm doing one of my dancing and then and I'm getting into it like, yeah, yeah. And I'm dancing like, everybody, come on, let's go. And I hate wired mics with a passion. I really hate wired mics. I really request whenever I'm at a show, I say, can I have a wireless, please? I can't do the wired mics because I spin and I dance and I move and I will just trip up over the wire. And I don't want to do that. If I have a wireless, I can move and not fear I'm going to trip up. I actually have a fear of tripping up over wires. Because I know that I will spin and tangle and then I'm wrapped. It's crazy. So it was a wired mic. And I was like, oh gosh, here we go. Here we go. So I had the wired mic and I'm like, okay, let me not try and dance too much. But I'm getting excited. Everyone's getting lit. Everyone's turning up. In a, and university students are the funnest people in the world to make, do music with and do concerts with. Because they really just get lit. They just love life. Especially Christian unions, they just love it. They're like, yeah, yeah, come on. Let's do it. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. Literally, that's how they are. And then the wire that plugs in the mic must pop out. So I'm there with just a mic, but there's no no wire connected. I'm like, uh, okay, so I can do two things now. I can keep going and style it. Or I could be like, rah. So what my friend does as a G, because he came with me, my boy that drove me there. He just swiftly just came and just plugged it back in with me and he made it into something where like he just came on and he started dancing with me and he just plugged it back in and it was plugged in and it was fine and it was styled out and everyone just found it funny and they found it fine and they just kept going and then my friend ended up getting on the other mic the other mic I started beatboxing and he just did it spontaneously it was crazy so actually the mistake became into an amazing moment and it made me just feel it made me in that moment I just realised it's okay you don't have to take yourself that seriously CJ like, I think before I just took myself way too seriously when I'm doing things. Even when I was having fun, I was like, no, I've got to be professional, though. And I'm like, who told you you have to be professional? It's your creativity. It's your art. You can dance. You can have fun. You can do whatever. You know, I see people, I've seen people do crazy things, man. I've seen people jump off of things and crash into, like, onto other stages. And it's just like, why not have just some fun, you know? You're meant to be giving people an outlet to escape and to feel free and to express themselves and to, to let loose. So just do that for people, man. You don't need to take yourself so seriously. So I've learned to do that with my performances, not take it so seriously. And there is little things happen. I just make fun out of it. I've learned that I like to make jokes. I really like to make jokes. People say I should go into comedy. I don't know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but I like to make jokes of little things. So even when the speakers might play up, I'll be like, whoa, right, is the song that good? <laughs> like, or just something stupid, like, just something stupid. Or when, or when the track's taking long. I've been, I've been at some churches and the uncle is struggling. He's struggling to put the MP3 on. It's like, yep, uncle, it's all right. And I'll just be talking. So I'm like, yeah, so today I went to the barbers and uh, yeah, it was all right. There's a little bit of a key and I'll just be talking. And people will love it. They'll be like, yeah, yeah, we love when you just talk before your songs. And I'm like, literally, I'm just blabbing because uncle's taking long to put the song on. And then he puts the song on and it works. So, yeah, man, I've learned to have a lot of fun through those things. But that was definitely a, an interesting one. It could have gone very, very left, but it decided to go very right. So, yeah. I always ask my behind the mic guests this question as well, CJ, which is, about the myths people might have about the music industry and the realities for artists, especially those with mental health implications that fans or even friends might not see. For example, artists who work full-time jobs alongside doing music. Tell the listeners about some of the realities you've experienced and the impact they've had on your mental health. This culture that you just, you know, you just come one day, release one song and you blow up. It can be a reality 
I'm not saying that you can't make a great song and it can't blow up, but there is a process. And many people just think that, oh yeah, one day they're just gonna do one song and they're just gonna, yeah, do one concert and they've made it. In this music game, it's always about being consistent and longevity. This is not for the swift and, you know, the people are just like, oh yeah, I just wanna blow up and make a load, you know, a couple of tunes and then just live, be rich. If you wanna, then this isn't, this is not it. Like, it's not the game because it takes time, it takes investment. It's a lot of time you're pouring yourself out for hours in the studio, like hours recording, hours doing videos, hours doing promo, hours doing content. You're just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, going to concerts every single week, going to shows every single week, just giving your all. And you don't really get much back until you start getting established. Like, you know, I didn't start getting paid for my music until a little while on, until maybe like six months in, into like being an artist. Like I used to just do like, you know, you get your travel, you get a little blessing here and there, but getting substantial income whereby like, okay, cool. Now I'm making more money when I do a show than I do like in a day's work in like maybe 20 minutes, which is a, is a, a really a blessing. It's really, really a blessing. That came with time though, that's a year in. <laughs> and even if I want to start making money to a point where I can retire, in terms of like retire my job and not do my job as much anymore and even do my job on a volunteer basis in terms of work with young people, I still have to build. I still have to build. I still have to build. So the reality is having a full-time job. I mean, I love my full-time job. A lot of people, they do a full-time job. They don't love just to invest in the music, but I love my full-time job and I'm grateful for it. But it's tiring, do you know what I mean? Doing a full-time job and then trying to also do a career and do music and really give yourself to people. And sometimes you feel like you're giving a lot, but you don't get a lot back. And it's something that you have to wrestle with and know that, okay, Again, I'm not valued by the amount of streams I have, by the amount of money I'm making, by the amount of people that know my name. I'm generally valued because my music is great and I'm great. And just because not a lot of people haven't seen it doesn't mean your content's not good. I think that's the biggest battle I've had to wrestle with my mental health is that, well, I've got this sick tune, but it's not making the same numbers as this artist. And I think my tunes are equally as good. And you have to be like, well, it's not about the numbers though. You're not doing it for the numbers anyways. And numbers comes with time, numbers comes with influence. And I'm even learning my record label, like we've got a lot more links than we did last year. So even getting more streams is gonna naturally happen, but it's all about progressing. And that's the biggest thing I think that artists may struggle with is comparison, comparing themselves to other people, comparing themselves to what other artists are doing. All these artists are releasing around you, but you're not releasing, oh, I need to release. I've learned to be like, no, I don't. I want to release when I've got the best content, not just because everyone else around me is releasing music. That's not the right mentality to have. Sometimes you put goals in place and you have deadlines like, yeah, this is when I'm going to release the project. And then sometimes things get slowed down or things happen or actually your managers go to you and say, no, the song can improve, we can work on it. And you're like, but I've been working on this for six months and it's still not out. You can get a bit discouraged, but you have to learn that now time is a good thing and there's a process. And the more you trust that process, the more you're going to reap from the benefits. And every song I've done, especially Hood Profit, I recorded them and I made the idea and the concept a long time before I released it. So I wanted to make sure the promo was right, production was right, I was really happy with it. So I'm grateful for that time. But in the process, you're thinking, oh, I've been working on this song for six months. Is it really going to do anything? Like, you know, maybe I forget this song because it's not going to do anything. And then when you wait and it does release and it does have an impact that you knew that it was said it was going to happen, you trust it. So I think we have to learn to be patient. We have to learn to just, you know, have faith in ourselves and in our abilities. And stop looking at everyone else, man. This social media world just makes you look at everybody and what everyone else is doing. But 
even in your like you know in everything in your in your job in your relationship you're always looking at other people ah oh, that they look so happy why is my relationship that good ah oh, they look like they you know they're making so much money why am i not making that much money and it's like stop comparing yourself you're different people different purposes different journeys and this whole looking at other people this impatience kind of mentality makes you very ungrateful for the things you have and i always have to count my blessings every morning i count the blessings that i have i count the fact that i have an amazing family that support me an amazing church community that supports me a label that push into me and pour into me i've got a community on instagram that really believe in me i've got people that really believe in me i've got an amazing girlfriend that pushes me every day so why am I complaining? Do you know what I mean? Why am I saying that, oh, I'm not doing well as an artist when I'm doing a lot better than some artists are? Some artists are not even, they haven't been able to make any income or have any shows, release any music because they have no facilities to do it. But I have a home studio at home and I'm complaining. I think the biggest thing I've combated is comparison, patience, and yeah, just learning to trust my art and trust my timing as well. And also know that it's okay not always to be okay especially as a gospel artist because everything we do is instilled in, in sharing hope and giving people that lift that uplifting that's what our whole genre is about uplifting people but sometimes yourself you might not be uplifted and it's okay to actually write and produce music as a artist from a place of hurt from a place of struggle from a place of pain because god is able to use that and you're able to actually help people even with being real and I've learned to do that so much more with like my book and my life and my even through my posts and just through my conversation, even being on this podcast, just being real that not everything is always okay, but God is always good. And as long as I know that I'm alive, as long as I've got a heartbeat and I'm breathing, I have a reason and a purpose to be here. So I've got to keep going. Even in the hardest times, I've got to keep going. And when I feel hard and feel weary, I can go to people that I love and I can always also just pray and ask God to give me the strength that I need. We could talk all day long about this topic, mate, but I've got one more question left for you. Going on this journey for the time you have, CJ, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? What has it taught me about myself? Wow. It's taught me patience. It has taught me humility. Oh, yeah. It taught you humility because sometimes when people are always praising you, you have to know, like, that's not where my value comes from. Do you know what I mean? Or when people are criticizing you too. Oh, why'd you do this? Or why'd you do that? And that's what I mean. Like, you can't take praise so good. And then when one person says, no, nah, what you're doing is rubbish. You take that so badly, then you're an imbalanced individual. And I think I've learned to not be like that. I don't take praise like, oh my days, thank you so much. But I don't also don't take criticism as, oh my days, I'm a failure. I've learned to be like, okay, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I'll take praise from the rap, the people that I know that love me a lot. But also the people that love me that criticize me will be like, okay, I appreciate you're coming from. And I just learned to be level-headed. You have to be level-headed. It's taught me to be level-headed. It's taught me to know, to listen, and know that I don't know everything. I think artists, we get very like protective over our art and we're like, this is amazing. Cause I put all these hours into it and I believe in it. And then someone says to you, no, it's not that great. You're like, wait, what? But, but what do you mean it's not great? Like, how could you say such a thing? And it's like, it's okay. It's okay, like this is a process of, you have to make it better. Like what you're recording, not the finished product. You have to be willing to let go of that verse. And it's been something that's sticky. It's like, I wrote this verse. You want me to change it? And you want me to do this verse? But you just trust it. You just trust it. You trust it. You trust it. I've learned to trust people's opinion, trust the team that I have around me. And yeah, learn to not be so protective and so like 
think art is like a baby to artists. It's like, you know, this is your precious thing. And people want to try and tamper with your baby. It's like, stop touching it. Stop touching my child. Stop touching my stuff, man. Like, leave it alone. But you have to trust that. No, no, no. You can do your thing. You can change it. You can make it better. What else have I learned? I've learned to also... Yeah, I've learned that I'm actually a very impactful person. What I have to say matters. And I think that is something that I say with all humility. Because I think for many times you think that your voice is insignificant. And I have been the past battle of insecurities. And I don't feel like I battle them anymore. Sometimes I have my days where I'm just like, and I don't feel I'm good enough. And I just always remember, that, no, but you are, Callum. You are. Your voice matters. People want to hear what you have to say. You're someone that is young and you're inspirational to your generation. And you have, a, you know, a story and you, you represent has so much meaning. Your faith is matters to people that even may not have faith. It matters because people need it. People need it in this world. People need that hope. People need that smile that you have. People need that joy that you have. So I've learned to know that my voice matters and I'm impactful and that I'm worth it. Do you know what I mean? I'm worth the investment and I'm worth people's time. I've learned also that. So I think that a lot of artists need to know that. A lot of people just need to know that in general. That you have a, you have a reason to be here. You have a value. I don't believe we're just here for no reason. If that's the case, then life is a bit dead, to be honest, a little bit of a waste of time. But if we are here for a reason that's bigger than ourselves, then we've got to be walking in that every day. And that's what I just live by. So, yeah, that's what I've learned as an artist. We talked all about Saint CJ. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your own journey, Callum, in a bit more detail and lift the lid on your experiences. So I ask all my special guests this question first. So why don't you tell me about early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? Who's the Callum we meet here? And let's start with primary school first, because I know you've got lots to say on your secondary school journey too. Primary school, wow. Yeah, growing up, Callum was, he's a boy that, he did love life, he loved to have fun, but he had real, real struggles, real issues, you know, from growing up young, like not even having a father at all, until the age of 18, when I actually got in contact with my dad. I think not having a father figure as a young boy did affect my outlook on what it meant to be a man. And having that fatherly affirmation or that fatherly push really affected me. Um, I had my mother, and my mother is the most amazing woman in the world. She's brilliant. I love her so much. And yeah, growing up, things were really tough, I guess, at home with my mum. She went through a lot of mental health struggles herself. And me and my brother grew up seeing that, seeing my, our mum very, like, you know, depressed and unmotivated and just quite frustrated. Yeah, I guess me and my brother both had fathers that were not really consistent in her life and they didn't treat her that great. So we just grew up seeing our mum quite broken and we just had to try and put this brave face on for her and try and be the, the men in her life that weren't there as her sons. And she really loved us and protected us and nurtured us because, you know, she wanted us to be better men. So yeah, growing up, primary school years, that was really going on at home and that did affect me a lot and I did struggle a lot in school and I did struggle because I have um I have special needs so in terms of like learning needs in terms of like I just didn't I just struggle with like academics a lot in terms of you know understanding social cues and these different things I grew to understand them 
but having Asperger's syndrome meant that I just really didn't understand people at all, really, which is quite funny because people wouldn't believe it, but it's a real part of my life. And I think that I felt like that was the reason why my dad left is because I was different, I was weird, or I was, you know, whatever. So when I was around 12 years old, my brother actually moved out and that was hard, even though my brother had his own life to live. I think I really held on to him a lot. And he really helped me a lot growing up. Like my brother was like my dad, basically. So when he moved out and did his own life, I think I was like, okay, cool. There's no, no men in my life anymore. My brother was still consistent. He'd still be there. And he still was consistent to this day, but it wasn't a father. Your brother is not your dad, do you know what I mean? And he was wonderful and amazing, but I still thought I needed this dad. And I had the affection of my mum, but it was hard because she had those times that she was really depressed and she really struggled. And sometimes because of that, the way she reacted and responded to me wasn't the best but I understand why I understand that she had her own problems and a lot of times when we're going for our own things we easily project so I think that's kind of where I was at at home growing up I was bullied a lot I was bullied a lot in primary school they used to be called Bugs Bunny because my teeth were uh, very mad which is funny because God has blessed me and, and my dentist is a good guy I like that full dentist he's been good to me but literally, so now, you know, my teeth are a lot better and I had braces for like three years. But yeah, I was bullied a lot because, you know, of that. And yeah, just bullied a lot for different things. I think because I'm Asian, people used to call me a Paki and just a lot of stuff that just wasn't cool. And because I was so bullied so severely in primary school, I think it made me switch. And what was depression and, and a cry for help became a lot of aggression and anger and frustration. And like, I don't want people to mess around with me. So I remember there was one event even in primary school where I was like literally by the older years, I was beat up and I was literally shoved under a shed. And that was a very traumatic experience. And I couldn't get underneath the shed. I was trying to drum myself and I couldn't get out. And I think I was stuck under for about an hour. So I came back out and I never told nobody at all. I didn't tell nobody. I just dealt with it. Went back to class and the teacher was like, why are you late? Where were you? Are you? And I just didn't say anything because I just didn't believe that they would believe me. And so I think this was when I started to become a bit unruly in school. So yeah, I left that primary school. I went to a different primary school because I was struggling a lot in that primary school. I went to a second primary school and then I still was struggling with a lot of bullying and this kind of stuff. And it just fueled a lot of then now, the rebellious nature in my secondary school years. But again, bullying, again, violated, again, mistreated. And I think bullying is something that people need to address, especially as boys, especially as men. We don't talk about it enough, but they're real things that affect young men, but they never address it. And there's a lot of reasons why a lot of young men go into violence and into gangs, because they don't want to be bullied anymore. They don't want to be getting picked on. So, okay, you want to pick on me? I'm going to get in a gang and now you can't pick on me anymore because I'm not someone to be messed around with. So that was primary school. Although I did enjoy in terms of like, I, you know, I think primary school is when I got introduced to like performing arts and that became a very beautiful escape for me and a beautiful way of releasing all of the struggles I was going through. Home life was still very difficult and, and school life was very difficult because of the bullying and family situation I was going through. And my dad was trying to get back in my life again, but my mom didn't really want it. And I didn't really want it to be honest because I'd rather just have no dad than an inconsistent dad. So that's primary school years. Before we talk about secondary school, mate, it's really eye-opening what you said there because I didn't know you had Asperger's syndrome. When you were in the education system, did you experience any stigma because of it, either from kids or from teachers? And did you ever feel like there were limitations placed on you because of it? 
or were you told that you could achieve whatever you could despite it, if that makes sense? Yeah, 100%. I definitely wasn't told I can achieve what I want to achieve. 100% not. The only person that told me that was my big brother because it was seen as a disability. And I don't believe in that word. I just don't like it. Even I work with children with special needs now. That's one job I do now and it's one of the reasons I do. And children that are vulnerable and children that are vulnerable to either violence or just even general um, special needs and mental health and in a whole. It's been very close to my heart. But my brother always told me, you're special. You're not disabled, you're special, which means there's something different about you that's good. Being special is not a bad thing. Just because you see the world differently, just because you react to the world differently, just because you speak differently or you think differently does not mean you are disabled or weird or, or an outcast. So my brother would tell me that, but in school, yeah, they definitely put limits on me. They said, you know, he might achieve, but you know, he's not gonna do that well. He can't really do a lot of things that other people can do. And yeah, I think a lot of the kids just saw me as a bit weird. They saw me, you know, going to different rooms and with these other kids and getting extra time. And I think there was a stigma that like, it went two ways. It was either you're a weirdo or oh, this is all an act. Because I don't, you know, come across as overtly <laughs> special. Do you know what I mean? I don't have, like my kids are very overtly considered like special. Their communication is limited. They have a lot of tics and some of them, you know, obviously they're in wheelchairs and stuff like that. So it's, it's very obvious that they have special needs or they have more learning needs. But me, you know, I can talk and I can walk and I can do everything that person can do. So my brain is slightly different. So you don't see the things that I see. And sometimes it would get me in a lot of problems, even with friends, because I wouldn't understand social things or like different things like sarcasm and that. And I just take it as like, okay, cool. And then people think I'm being rude. People think I'm being like, am I okay? Or am I just think I'm better than anyone else? Or am I just strange? Like, so it, did, it was kind of difficult through school because I don't think I really understood myself, nor did I understand people around me or, or my teachers. And it just, yeah, again, teachers is either two ways. Either like, you're lazy, you're just not trying hard enough, or you're just dumb, you're just stupid. You just can't do anything. So yeah, it, I definitely think that there needs to be more done to help people that do um, learn differently. And I think they're getting better now in education. It's definitely something that I want to instill when I'm older and I'm going to go into workshops with young people and stuff in the future, something on my heart. Because just because you learn differently does not mean you're stupid. You know, some people, they're practical learners. Some people, they're audio learners. Some people, they're visual learners. I'm a practical learner. I never really was an academic type, but practically I could learn a lot. And I think when I was very good at something, a very good trait of Asperger's when I was researching is that when you really love something or when you're interested in something, you will thrive. So in the area of music and dance and acting and videography and this stuff, I thrived because I was so interested in it, I was immersed in it. It's like I wanted to spend hours and hours a day dancing, hours and hours a day making music because it became like a thing that I was really, really into. And yeah, it's helped me to understand that just because I'm different doesn't mean I cannot do great things as well. When we get to secondary school, mate, it's fair to say your mental health began to deteriorate in a very serious way, despite what you'd already been through with the bullying and your experiences at home with your mum. If you could, just tell me about this period of your life, how you felt and what transpired. Yeah, so when I was 13, 14 years old, my mental health went on a complete shoom, plummet, like rock bottom to the ground. Yeah, I became very, very, very depressed. I knew I was loved, but I didn't feel like no one loved me. School was so tough. Year seven, 
I went into a secondary school and it just got worse because I was in a school that was basically like a pro. So I was fighting every day, people always picking on me. And I was just like, I'm not having it anymore. I was going into fights, 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 fights. And even one to a point where I was like, I could have been stabbed <laughs> because it was so mad. Or I was going to stab someone else because it was just like so much violence was going on. And it was just like, I couldn't deal with it anymore. I didn't see no way of escape. It's at year seven, as I said, and, and I went into a whole new school because of the fighting, because I kept getting into trouble, into year eight. And I tried to change now because of being in year eight. But again, when I tried to be myself, bullying came again and I was like, being myself just gets me bullied. I don't want to be myself anymore. I just want to be someone else. So I'm trying to be like the cool kids and the rude boys because they got respect in the school. And that's, you know, that I went. But just before that happened, just before I made this complete change to being someone I wasn't anymore and lost my complete identity around 13, I just, yeah, broke down, didn't want to live anymore. And that made me, yeah, lead to five suicide attempts, three hangings, tried to free, hang myself three times and then run in front of a car, just really, like, crazy. And I used to self-harm a lot. You know, I wanted to do things that were not so overt because I didn't want my mum to see. But definitely like hitting myself or hitting myself with things, definitely I did that. And just leaving bruising on my skin and scratching myself. Like I had eczema, um, I have eczema. So what it means is that I wouldn't cream on purpose and then I would just scratch and scratch and scratch and scratch till I bled. Cause that was a form of me being able to self-inflict harm on myself. And not take my inhaler just to make sure that like my breathing was messed up, just all these different things. Cause I just wanted to, how can I just make myself suffer as much as possible and it's really sad that happens to people but it's real it's a real thing and i'm so grateful that i'm out of that place now but it was a really really dark place really really dark place and i remember that basically i um ended up having an attempt and my mum ended up stopping me i tried to hang myself and then she stopped me and was like no no no, no. you need to stop what you're doing and she got really she really broke down she's like you're not okay Callum. like this is not okay so she called the hospital and then I think a week after, yeah, I got sectioned basically. I went to the countryside, left school, left um, my family and I was literally out in a, in a hospital ward for about six months. So it was, yeah, a big chunk of my 13 to 14, almost 14, just in hospital, just getting help, getting counselling, getting support because I was so severely depressed and the kids around me were depressed too. And, I, you know, it was the first time I came into contact with schizophrenia. Um, I had never seen somebody that talks to themselves and really like, and I was just like, wow, they're in a room and they're talking to themselves. And I was scared. And they were like, yeah, that person's got schizophrenia, they hear voices. And I was like, wow, that is crazy. Like, I just never knew that was a thing before. Like, you see things on TV and they talk about it, but it's like, oh, you know, this isn't real or this is like exaggerated, but it's real, more than real. And I came across like real anger management issues, kids that would be throwing tables. And I was even put in the younger section because I was 13, so I should have been put with the older kids. But because they were worried about my safety, because the older kids were quite strong and they could get like, violent, they put me with the younger kids. So I was one of the oldest. But I remember, yeah, just being in the ward. And I think that's the first time that I ever really like cried to cry out to God. Because I wasn't, didn't come from a Christian home, my family are not Christians. I never had any sort of faith or religious background, no church, no whatever. So that's the first time I kind of thought, you know, my friends were Christian, they tell me about it a lot. And I went to Catholic school, but my second, second school was at Catholic school. So I, I was introduced to it, but I was like, maybe, maybe I should pray because 
I'm just so lost and I don't even know what else to do anymore. I don't know what any there's any way other way out. And I think that's the first time I actually prayed. But it wasn't when I became a believer, but it definitely was the first time I tried to cry out to God. So yeah, that's the mental health journey. And then when I prayed, I remember saying that I pray you just give me joy. And I almost instantly felt this like peace. And it was such a weird experience. I was like, wow, I feel peace for the first time in the world. And I was just like, yeah, I felt this peace. I don't know what it was, but I felt peace. And I remember I got discharged maybe a week after because they said that my mental health was progressively improving. And they asked, what did you do? And I said, oh, I prayed. And they said, okay, well, maybe you should keep doing that. This is what my mental health advisors told me because it's obviously helping you. And I ended up being able to get discharged just before Christmas. So I was then now back home with my family, not at school yet, but I was in like, you know, another unit, which was I was discharged to. So it wasn't the main hospital, but it was like a hospital nearby. And I would be doing like part-time school, part-time ward. So that was kind of my journey for the next maybe three, four months before I went back into education and I got properly discharged. So around the time I was like 14, just turning 14 is when I was able to get back into education. So I missed a whole year of basically school, um, just in hospital really. Before we move on to a very big turning point in your life, Callum, I just want to quickly go back to when your mum found you because I want to ask have you ever had a conversation with her since that event and given she'll probably listen to this what do you think you would say to her reflecting on that event I would just say thank you (laughs) like my mum is incredible and she has been such a big support in my life and I prayed to be the same support to her and uh, we've both been through a lot of things. Like she's been with me through hard things and I've been through her with her through hard things. And that's why I think we are so tight and close and she's my rock. Yeah, she is incredible. And I just want to say thank you because if she had not done that, I wouldn't be here. So I believe that that was really a big, big blessing. I thank God for that every day. That my mum was there at the right time, you know, and that she helped me in that moment. So yeah, mum knows already that I love her. Let's talk about that turning point in your life, Callum, because it was a very serious criminal offence you were charged with, which was taken to court. Now, you said to me off air that in this moment you felt completely lost, but you did find a chink of light out of it. What are your memories of this event and how did your faith help you through it? Yeah, so going back to then, you know, me praying and I guess I was here and there praying when I was getting discharged. I got discharged when I was, yeah, about 14. And they said that, you know, we're really proud of your mental health journey. And I didn't feel suicidal or depressed anymore, but I still felt very empty. I still felt like I was longing for something. And I would pray, and when I would pray, I would feel better, but I didn't say that that was like a turning point when I really gave my faith to God. Because I still wanted to be young and live life. And I just felt like Christians are very boring and oh, you got, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do this. That's how I saw faith. I didn't see it as a liberating thing. I didn't see it as something that's actually beneficial to your life and can actually help you. I saw it as very restrictive and religious. So yeah, I went back to school now. This is like year nine. I got charged in year 10, turning to 11, yeah. It's around year nine now. So I'm coming back now. And I said to myself, I'm gonna come back as a different person properly. After the holiday, I'm gonna come back as a different person. I'm gonna be the rude boy. Because the rude boy gets the girls, gets the popularity, gets everything. So I came back and I just changed. Started wearing, you know, low bottoms, started just 
being rude and cussing teachers and wearing hoodies in school just bad for no reason and i remember that anybody would ever try and give me problems i started getting a reputation as someone that was very that used to fight all the time so i'd just be like no nah, i'm not having it and i'd always be fighting people all the time cj's in in the deputy head for fighting cj's in the deputy head for having inappropriate dress or i wasn't you're not supposed to have designs and lines and these things in my hair i would do it on purpose i just didn't care just wanted to be rebellious. Anywhere I could be rebellious, I'll be rebellious. Talking in class and cussing teachers and getting sent out of class. And just my reputation was became this guy's like the rude boy of a school. Even when it came to like female interaction, just becoming one of them boys that just, you know, messes around with girls and just didn't care anymore. And I really lost myself of who I was. And even my family saw it. My brother was like, what are you doing, bro? This isn't you. I was like, this is me. I was like, no, this isn't you. Like, you're trying to be someone you're not to fit in. And my mum was even just like, yeah, like, I don't know who you are anymore, Callum. You're never home. I'd always tell my mum, oh, yeah, I'm going to study. And I was going to link with my friends to smoke weed and just to do nonsense and to muck around in Croydon, just playing around, just being silly and just stay on the, you know, the side corner all day, just doing nothing. And I remember even adults would come up to us and be like, what are you kids doing? Like, why are you just out on the sidewalk doing nothing in your lives? You don't know that you're going to end up doing nothing in your lives. We just didn't take any of it in. So this became a real build up into who I was and who I became rather. And then, yeah, when I was 15, so this is about a year into education now, and I am failing education at this point. I am not studying, I'm not revising, I'm not doing nothing. I do not care. I'm literally just doing nothing. And I'm literally underachieving. To a point where my teacher said, this boy is the most underachieving student in his entire year. He will not achieve anything with his life. He's going to fail every single subject. He's not going to go to any college, any university. He's literally only undergraded, which is like an F <laughs> in everything. Everything I even cared about, I was there. And even my um, my teacher, my music teacher, he, he was a blessing because he was trying to draw me out of that and was like, this is not you. Like You need to change. I care about you. Music is the only thing that you're thriving in and you're wasting your time with these boys that don't even care about you you know, my TA and all these different people were trying to really draw me out, but I just didn't see it. I was like, now these are my friends though, but they weren't really my friends. They were just people that I associated myself with because they were cool and they were popular and everybody liked them. But it wasn't, it wasn't my friends by any means necessary. So now we go to 15 and I get charged with this offense, as you say. So I remember me and my friend had this big falling out and I thought that they had stolen from me. So I was like, yeah, no one steals from me. Do you not know who I am? This is like the kid I used to be like, do you not know who I am? Do you think you can mess around with me like that? And they just denied it, denied it, denied it. And they started to um, say a lot of insults about my mom, about my family. And if you know anything about a young boy, his family means the world to him, especially a boy that is now affiliated with the wrong crowds. My mom is like my favorite person in the world. So when you insult my mom, I just didn't take that very lightly. I took it very to heart. So I was like, yeah, we've got to do something. So we planned out on doing this whole like premeditated. So I got charged with premeditated critical assault or gross bodily harm. So that's when you beat someone up to the point of severity with the intent of doing something harmful, but prior to the event. And me and my friend, we pretended, we said, okay, cool. We're going to beat this guy up. We're going to rush him. Rushing means like, you know, beat him up in an alleyway. And we're going to pretend to be his friend, but then do it in this alleyway. So... We get detention on purpose. Imagine I got a three hour detention on purpose just to harm someone. This is the crazy things that you do when you're just angry and you don't know what you're doing with your life. 
So I pretended to get, you know, to be his friend. Got into detention for three hours. We waited for him, me and my friend. We just say his name's D. And my friend D. And then we waited for him. And, yeah, we went down the road and we're talking. And then I remember he must have said, I'm sorry. And something inside of me at that moment said, is this worth it? He said he's sorry and he generally didn't mean anything. But my friend D was like, no, you have to beat him up. You know, if you don't beat him up, then you're soft and you're not really about this gang life. Because I'd been introduced to his uncle who's involved in gangs. And I know that I was very easily going to get involved in probably selling drugs and just more violence and burglary and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, if I really want to be a bad man, if I really want to be about this life, I have to beat him up. So I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't take your apology. We beat him up very, very badly. And all I saw was red. I think in that moment, when I look back at it, all I saw was all the pain in my life. My dad not being there, my mum being struggling at home, the bullying that went on for years, the depression that I've been through. Literally, all I saw was everything I've been through. And I just lashed it out on this person. And I remember snapping out of this red, just seeing him on the floor motionless and being like, let's go. And I ran, we ran away. And the back of my mind, I was like, what have I done? How have I done that to somebody? But on the external, I was like, yeah, we beat him up. Ah, that was sick. I he thought he was a big man. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, CJ, this isn't you. Like, Callum, who are you? Like, who even are you anymore? Do you know what I mean? You're not who you are anymore. So he ended up going back to school, telling every all of my teachers and the headmaster and even getting the police involved about what happened. So he ended up having severe bleeding and bruising and internal bleeding and all this stuff. And he ended up even having, like, PTSD because he was so traumatic. Like, it was so much of a traumatic experience of what happened that he thought, like, rah, was I even going to make it out <laughs> alive? So we, you know, now brought back to school in the headmaster's office and they told us that, yeah, you're gonna get expelled from education. That's it. You've done this crime and you're probably gonna spend the rest of your years in a pupil referral unit because if you were 16, this would have been a criminal offense. You would have been charged and you should have really gone to prison. This is actually a criminal offense. But because you were 15, it's gonna go to a pupil referral unit. So I wouldn't have had any education, wouldn't have had any GCSE, no college. I would have just been spending the rest of my years in youth prison. And I looked back at it and I was just like, how did I even get here? Because I just didn't even know who I was. I didn't know how I got so much anger inside of me to do this to somebody. And I knew it was the company I was keeping that weren't good for me. So when I looked back at it, it was, it was crazy. How do you look back on this event? Do you feel remorse, relief, or can you separate the CJ you were back then and say he's not the person you are now? And then also, how did your faith get you through that event? When I think back at it, I'm not proud of it, by any means. It's definitely a thing that I say I'm not proud of. I did feel remorse. I don't feel remorse anymore because I know that it's moved on and I am not the same CJ I used to be. And even things have been restored between me and the individual. So at that time, I remember I was supposed to have a court case, as you said, it's supposed to be in there and it's supposed to be charged with criminal offence. And at that week, the week before that was all supposed to happen, I remember I prayed and I said, God, if you are real, and if you're really who you say you are, if I don't get expelled from education, I'll actually live for you. And I'll turn my life around. I'll stop doing the things that I'm doing. I didn't even know what that meant because I wasn't a religious person by any means. But I said, if you are this God that you say you are, that they tell me in school, this Jesus guy that says he loves me and says he wants to do this in my life, 
then do this in my life and I will actually live for you, no question about it. And I'll live my life to share what you've done in my life to others. So I remember at that time, the next day actually, they said to me, you know what, you're supposed to have your court case, but it's been dismissed and we're giving you a second chance. We're actually gonna let you remain in education and we're not gonna press charges on you. You actually, and they said to me, you've been given so much grace you don't even understand it. They say, if you do one more thing in this school, you're out. One thing wrong, you're out. One more fight, you're out. Done. Finished. You're out of this school. Not even without, you know, bat an eyelid. So I remember just being like, wow. And they said, we believe in a God of second chances. This is what my, my headmaster said. So I remember I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I said, wow, my prayer was answered. I can't believe this is happening. And that's when my faith really became a reality. And that's when I gave my life to Christ. That was the 20th, so that's 20th of July. I think I gave my life to Christ the 25th of July. So I prayed and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. And I asked him into my life and I went to church 25th of July, 2015. And now I've been five years since then. And it's almost six years this year. And it's been incredible. And yeah, but I don't feel any remorse anymore because I believe that that situation has passed. And even after this whole thing happened, after, he got dismissed. I went to him and I said, I'm generally sorry for the things I did. I didn't mean it. The other boy didn't say sorry. I basically said sorry for him. So he stayed in school because he didn't feel bad about it at all. He was very cold, but he had a lot of things he was going through that like even mental health as well. So I understood that he was, refl- he was actually projecting a lot of his trauma because his dad was in prison and his mum was not present and his family were very, you know, involved in drugs and violence and so he had his own issues and we both were just young boys trying to seek hope and I had found that but he didn't want it and our friendship ended up breaking apart unfortunately I don't even speak to him anymore I don't even know how he's doing I hope he's okay I hope he's not you know in prison but that's the way he was living I hope that he's okay I hope he's still doing something good with his life but I don't know last time I know is that you know we broke up as friends and that was it and actually um, something that I haven't shared much with people, but I share now, is that even when we broke up and I said, I don't want to be involved with you anymore, he did stab me in the leg. Not very, very strongly, but it was like a graze just because he felt like I broke him, like I broke his heart by letting him go as a friend. And I think that was the final thing that made me go, rah, this isn't right for me anymore. And although it wasn't deep, it hurt, but I never spoke to anybody about it because I said, it's just not worth it. And it really reminded me that this life of violence and gangs is not worth it. You have friends that they're supposed to be your friends and then the moment you let them go, literally they stab you, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they don't want to be with you anymore. And I think it was a really big eye open. I think if that did not happen, I probably would have tried to rekindle the friendship, but I'm so glad that I didn't because I don't even think I'd be here today if I did. We um, connected in terms of the other friend that I beat up we gained a good friendship and even now we're good friends. He's let go of all of the things and even the PTSD that he had, he's really recovered from it. Actually helped him through that whole process of letting that go. And he actually even came to church with me and he was like, you've really changed. You've really a new person. Like I didn't believe it, but now I do. Cause when I went back to school after this, this was the summer of 2015, I came back and it was year 11 now. I was still doing my, um, year 11 assessments and that with my headmaster because I couldn't be, I was still, you know, being, it was still a long-term kind of like punishment for what I'd done.
but obviously I wasn't kicked out anymore, but I started to do my things, but I was a different person. You know, I was nice to people, I was kind, I was loving, I was happy, and people just didn't believe it. They were just like, wow, CJ, you're like a different person. You're not messing around with girls anymore, you're not you're not smoking with us anymore. You don't wanna you don't wanna you just wanna be you're doing good now and you're really really care about Jesus. When we're praying when we're doing prayers in school and we're doing prayers in class, you wanna lead them and you're actually closing your eyes and believing it. Because when you used to do prayers in, in school you'd just be like, um to heaven and you're looking around, you're not really trying to listen. But now I'm proper clo- eyes closed and believing it. Because I know that God has done something in my life and it became a real prevalent thing. And I just started sharing everyone, telling everybody like, yeah, God's changed my life. Jesus has changed me. I'm joyful now. I've got peace. I want to do something with my life. I want to help people. It was insane. Just the change was so radical. Even my family were like, who is this CJ? We don't know this boy to be so kind and loving and happy and joyful. It just was a different person. Before we move on to a deeper discussion about faith, which will form the final part of this topic, mate, I just want to go back to how you restored and improved that relationship with the boy that you inflicted that assault on. Because many people believe that the justice system should be all about punishment and not about reform and doesn't accept that young kids make mistakes. I've made loads of mistakes, not maybe to the extent that you have, but saying stupid things, doing stupid things, we all do it. And the idea of restorative justice, which is whereby a person who has committed a crime talks to the person who's been the victim or victim survivor. How important was that for you? And do you think it can change the way kids like you experienced and dealt with those offences? Yeah, I believe social reform is the way forward. I think reform is such a important thing that we need to be instilling, especially for young people, because young people are still trying to know who they are. They can make mistakes. You know, when you're an adult and you're, you know, grown adult and you're, at a certain age, I do believe that you understand responsibility and you understand that your actions and you have to take responsibility for those actions. And for those individuals, I still believe in reform, but I understand in some cases, certain individuals, there has to be a consequence. There has to be. And even if there is reformance within that consequence, like I believe even if someone they've committed murder or whatever, even if there is a way to, of reformance in that place of like them serving 20 years in prison, I believe that's the way forward. Because reforming and helping people change is better than just punishing them for the actions that they've done. And I think if I had just gone to prison and been punished or just been kicked out of education, it would have just made me go even deeper into crime. And I think a lot of young people, because they don't get a chance, especially I believe young people and ethnic minorities don't get a chance, they're just going to go deeper into crime. Okay, so because I've hurt, you know, I've stolen, you're going to put me in prison for how many years? Of course they're going to get angry and bitter and say, you know what? this system don't love me I'm going to continue to do more violence I continue to get more crime and when you get into those places of prisons and you're all around criminals so all you're going to do is become a deeper criminal you might have gone into prison for something like I had done gross bodily harm but then you might come out of prison and commit (laughs) manslaughter because you've just got into a point where you're around other criminals or robbery or organized crime because you're around people that are really deeply involved in this kind of criminal activity and I know that if it wasn't for the reform of my school if it wasn't for my headmaster giving me a second chance I definitely would have gone deeper into crime because I would have been the Peru probably people would have been selling drugs there probably you know even me and my friend talked about my friend D was that when we go to Peru, man, nobody's going to chat to us. Nobody's going to talk to us. We're going to run that Peru. We're going to make sure that we're, you know, we're selling to everybody in that Peru. 
And I definitely would have probably got involved. It probably would have made me even worse. And even though in my heart of hearts I didn't want to do that, it was the road I was going towards. And I knew that my headmaster knew that. He knew that if I don't help out Callum, he's going to get worse. If he's around this guy, he's going to get worse. Because <laughs> this guy was just not a good influence on me at all. So yeah, I believe in reform. I believe that even with me talking to the individual that I inflicted assault on and really growing and really actually apologising, it actually brought a lot of healing to both him and myself. Because even I was quite close. I went to his mum's house. His mum knew me. Like his mum never thought I would do such a thing. So even to be able to say sorry to his mum and even to his family, I think that was a beautiful thing because she was able to see that there is change is possible. People can change. It taught me that people can change. I can change and that other people can actually forgive you, that you're never too far gone. You're never too far gone. So I believe that reform should be the first thing that we do for our young people. And it's why, it's one of the major reasons that I went into working with young people when I was 18, with youth offenders, with young people that were on prison and estates that had been kicked out of school for violence or were vulnerable to prison. Cause I was like, I don't want you to go down the road I was going. And I would tell them my story, the young people I worked with about yeah, I, was gonna get, I got charged myself. And they were like, what? We never believe it. And now you're working with young people. Like, and they really, they were really touched by that because they were like, wow, you, <laughs> now because of your experience, you want to help others. So it's really been a big turning point for me. And it's the reason why I do what I do now. The final part of this topic, CJ, that I want to chat to you about is faith. Now, you've already talked about so much of how God helps you and how your faith has benefited your mental health. But I want to talk about one question that I spoke to with Alex, a previous Just Checking In podcast, about the idea of praying away someone's mental health difficulties and the stigma in faith communities. I think there's a belief, maybe misguided, that it will cure someone's mental health difficulties instead of perhaps medication or therapy or other self-care methods that might help them. How are you addressing the stigma through the mental health work you do through Pour It Out Son? And how big a problem do you think it is? Yeah, I believe there is a very big stigma about mental health, especially in, in men. I think that it's never really addressed in the church because uh, there's a stigma as a man that you have to be strong and you have to be tough and you have to be masculine. And that's what they think masculinity is. But I've known my faith and you see it all throughout scripture that masculinity is actually transparency and being honest. And you look at these people like David, who would cry his heart out to God, and Jesus, who would weep. And you realise that these things, that we see these stigmas, are very toxic. Very, very toxic. And yeah, there is this culture to pray away things. And yeah, I don't believe in it at all. I think I definitely was one of the people who like, I'll just pray about it. But I realise it's not healthy. Like, you actually have to pray about things, and but also seek counselling, seek support. I think, you know, medical intervention is equally as important as spiritual intervention. And I believe in both. I believe in having people that pray for you and support you and having community, having people that shower you with the love of God, but also seeking counsellors, professionals, having the medication if you need it. I don't believe there's anything wrong with having medication. I don't think it should be our first result because, you know, medication can cause a lot of side effects and sometimes that can be even a dampener rather than addressing your emotions. I personally do not take medication because I don't feel like, I don't want to dampen what I feel. I want to actually address what I feel intentionally and deal with it and actually get through it i think sometimes when people do take medication it's just like oh it, it just it takes away the feeling as much as saying someone just pray it away it's more important to address your emotions i think that's what we should be teaching in church address your emotions be real and, and seek counsel and support by people 
and actually be honest in terms to God because God is not a God that's like oh yeah I just want to pray your problems away but actually I want to help you through your problems I want to help you through what you're going through and be there consistently with you and pour out son it came from that place of I wanted to change the culture and manhood I wanted to change manhood completely and say nope in the church in the world that manhood is not about hiding your emotions suppressing it trying to be tough especially an ethnic minority especially with people of color I want it to be a space where it's like cool we can be honest and raw and transparent about what we're going through and I'm very grateful that now you know we have about over 70 70 to 80 members yeah 80 members so 80 members and we have a deep honest conversations you know we talk about guys I we can do my father today guys I've been going through this battle in my mental health I've been struggling guys I've been struggling with addictions we talk about even the addictions that people go through because real things that affect people sometimes when you have mental health you try and find escapes that can be smoking that can be drinking that can be pornography that can be sex these things that people look to to try and find release but not addressing the issues that we have so pour out sun has really been that place and I really want it to be that platform that place where people can find real healing and I'm really I'm grateful that people have really received it and that a lot of men have come to me and said this is what we've needed for years we wish that there was this mental health organization mental health ministry for when I was like 12 years old for when I was young and I didn't know how to address my emotions so many young men go through so much and we just don't talk about it and the rate of mental health and depression and suicide in men is extensionally and greatly higher than it is in women. Crazy higher. Because men never talk about it. Men go through so much and they like build up, build up, build up, and then they just kill themselves. Or they just say, I don't want to live anymore. Or they just go through like a complete crash. And a lot of times with men, we don't recognise that a lot of people, they express it differently. I think women, many times women might express it in a way that's maybe easier to see. They might cry, they might be emotional. But men don't express it like that. Men might express it through being very angry and get involved in violence. Like a lot of people in gangs, they probably got depression, they probably got suicide, probably mental, but they're thinking that's their way of getting out of what they're feeling. Or a lot of men I've seen that they look into like money or success or they're so business orientated, but that's just an escape to deal with their issue they're going through. So I think it's very important to be honest and transparent. And that's what I'm trying to change in the church. I don't want this stigma anymore that as a man you can't be honest, you can't cry, you can't be real, you can't be vulnerable. Men go through the same things, they just don't talk about it. I've got friends that they opened up in this poor out son about things happened to them when they were very young and they never addressed it. And it's like, wow, you went through that when you were seven years old. And you wonder why that is coming out the way it's coming out now. So I think it's very important and we need to change the stigma for sure. Another issue in faith communities, CJ, and this doesn't discriminate to any particular religion, is this idea of suppression and punishment, that you mustn't do or don't certain acts or be punished and face retribution from God. What problems could that cause for someone's mental health? And is it something you see yourself? You told me about having a Christ mindset, not a church mindset. Explain that more for me. Yeah, I believe that the church hasn't always done the best that represent in what Jesus said. And that's me being honest, as a member and probably a very prominent figure in the church, even someone that, you know, is involved in the church and represents a lot of what the church represents. And I'm unashamed to say I love the church and the church being the people and the children of God. And I'm an unashamed Christian. I would say that the church has not done the best in expressing God's love, nor expressing the heart of God. 
God is not a God that is about suppressing or punishing you. But actually, far from it. Jesus teaches us about his love and his grace towards people. And that he's actually a loving father and he wants to liberate us rather than suppress us. What does that mean? I think sometimes we think that the things that are good for us are actually good for us. So I was like, okay, but why, why God do you say I shouldn't do this? And then I looked into it, I was like, well, is this going to be harmful to me? Does lying benefit me in any way? No, not at all. So I understand why God says we shouldn't lie because lying just is deceptive. We should be honest, we should be truthful because truth is lie. Why shouldn't I be unfaithful to my partner? Because that would hurt them and it would hurt me. So it makes sense why God says, this. why shouldn't we murder and harm people? Why shouldn't we insult and dishonor our parents? Why shouldn't we be sexually active until we are in a committed long-term relationship as married? Because these are things that protect us. These are things that make us better. These are things that actually, they make sense when you think about it. And I think when you look at it in a mindset where it's like, oh, seems like someone's trying to control me, then many people will see it and even the church may project it as suppression. But I don't believe God ever taught that. He actually taught us that love is the greatest thing and that grace and forgiveness are the greatest thing. And that's why I believe he died for me and for everyone so that we can actually be free from the things that we thought we couldn't be free from. I was so addicted to, to smoking and excessive drinking and pornography and mucking about with girls sexually. And since I found Christ, those things are no longer in my life and I'm able to be so much more. My mind is so much clearer. My thoughts are so much brighter. I've got joy and I've got peace. And even I look at my relationship now, and I'm so grateful that I wouldn't have found a relationship that is so solid and so grounded and so fulfilling if it was still in the way I was doing it when I was without Jesus, when I wasn't in, when I was doing things that everyone else is doing and, and it's been shown as to be popular. But when I followed the way that Christ showed me and followed the way the Bible says, I found so much more freedom. So that's why I believe that. Christianity is really about it's what Jesus taught is liberation, is freedom, and is that he loves us. And he's not judging us, he's not condemning us, he's not like a rod, he's beating us, don't do that and don't do this. He's actually doing quite the opposite. He's like, I actually want to help you to be a better person. And I want to change you and be the best and change you to be the best version of yourself. And you don't have to ever feel like, oh, because you made a mistake, you can't come to God. He can take your shame, can take your pain, can take your brokenness, and he can heal it. So yeah, I pray that I reflect that nature about Jesus, a God that is not judgmental, a God that is not condemning, a God that is not wrathful and angry, but actually quite the opposite. You know, that's why Jesus, the way Jesus, believe Jesus is quite the opposite. And just as a final question on this, CJ, there's another stigma here, which is when someone does recover from a difficult period of mental health, others might fall into the trap of attributing it to God, just God instead of perhaps that person themselves or how much hard work they've done on themselves or the medication or the therapy that they've gone through. Do you think that removes agency from that person? And how do you think we resolve this? Um, it's an interesting question. I believe that God works in people and in situations. So I believe that when I credit everything that I've been through to God, I do not forget all the people that were involved in that. I believe that God was working in my headmaster to make him let me stay in school. That God works in my mother for the love that she shows me. That God worked through my label to be where I am today. That God has worked through my friendships to help me get through the life I've been through. That God works through my girlfriend 
to show me the love and compassion and support that I need. So I believe that God works in everything if we can see him in everything. I think that many times people say, oh yeah, it was all my hard work and dedication. To be fair, probably was the therapist and the supporter and these things that you that you just said that have helped you. But where's the source of those things? I would always say it's back to God. Like that person helping you is God showing you that he cared for you. That medication that was given to you is God showing you that he cares for you. Because even down to the basis of, again, like as I said earlier in the interview about having breath in your lungs, I didn't put that breath in my lungs. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And we could say, oh, our parents did that, but who put the breath in your parents' lungs? So I always think it does, for me, always go back to God and him showing his love in every way, in people and in places and in things and in situations and circumstances. So, yeah, that's what I would say. I, say. I, really think, I think God is in all of it. Our final topic of conversation, Callum, is one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. It's a bit of quick fire. It's a bit more deeper question. So first off, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I say my mental health is good. I say it's very good. I have tendencies, I think, where I sometimes feel a bit unmotivated. But I, when those moments, I just call those that I love. And I just spend time listening to music a lot of time, like, yeah, maybe like worship music or music that's like, you know, praise and worship music, gospel music. And it really helps me get out of that place. But yeah, I've been at this at times feeling a bit unmotivated and I think I realised I was just a bit tired. So I've been sleeping a lot more, feeling a lot better. So yeah, I'm in a good place, man. I'm in a good place. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions do you live with, if any, and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I used to have a lot of different things i don't think i currently battle because i used to have um depression and trauma and these things i don't think i battle them anymore i still think that in terms of the trauma of things that happened last year i'm still healing from it although i I believe i'm healed to a very substantial degree i think there is still bits of healing that i'm doing and working on and i'm still getting through that with people and i'm actually trying to still you know grow and have those conversations and talk about those things um it's actually a journey I'm going on where I start to journal all my emotions and kind of just let it really come out and I think with the music I'm releasing is going to be a good way of releasing that. It's even a journey that I'm going on with my girlfriend we're both talking about the things we're going, we've been through and just helping each other to heal. So yeah I think that I'm still healing. I think I'm about 95% healed from trauma but I'll be, I'm hoping to be 100% very soon. But depression I don't suffer with anymore at all. I have moments of anxiety. I wouldn't say that I have anxiety like to a point where I get very very worked up but I think that when I care about something I can get anxious I've learned to deal with that really well I'm very good at regulating the things that I deal with but I think that's really about it I think that I have tendencies where I may feel depressed or I may feel anxious or I may feel worried as a human being but I wouldn't say that these are conditions that I live with on a day-to-day consistent basis so I feel like I've definitely felt healing from those things but yeah in terms of trauma in terms of that kind of healing, that's still a work in progress, but I'm getting there. It's really interesting what you said there about being 95% healed, because that's how I describe myself to a lot of my mates at the moment. When it comes to triggers, Callum, what are yours and what things do you find in life that do trigger your mental health? It could be things people might say to you, a sound, sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um, it's hmm, a good question. I think earlier on in my healing process, I could see real triggers, like real triggers. I mean, it'll be triggers of like seeing a poster from a community 
and that would trigger me from that community or seeing someone's social media from a community and that would trigger me or just hearing someone speak that was <laughs> just triggered me that triggered me a lot and it would be like the moment I would see that it just all would come back up again so now I would say I don't think those are crazy triggers anymore not at all yeah not at all I think it's all right now but now I wouldn't say that I can really kind of tell I guess my triggers maybe be like practical things, maybe like not sleeping enough or I think at times I can say one trigger is maybe being criticism because I think sometimes when I hear criticism, I'm quick to go back to those kind of situations. But I think in that moment, my past has really helped me to deal with that and say that, you know, you are affirmed and that you are loved by everyone around you. Whenever he tells me something, in terms of like, you can be like a general critique and times are like, oh, I like this song, but you can improve on this thing, or I've noticed this about you that I want you to improve on. Just in general, like, you know, as friends do and as the mentors do, but he always tells me that I love you and that I love you at the end of what he's saying always affirms me. And I think it stops that trigger feeling like, oh, somebody's basically going to beat me down again. So I think I'm able to recognise my triggers. I'm able to notice and I'm able to say, OK, I recognise this. And I'm able to process it and deal with it. And I'm so grateful I can do that. The moment I feel something, I address it at that moment. And I say, yep, I need to feel like that. They don't mean that way. We're in a situation. Or even just, it's okay. It's in the past. You've moved on. It doesn't matter. And that really helps. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What did you say? And how did it feel afterwards? Did it feel like a big moment and a big burden or weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something insignificant and normalised? Yeah, I think them first... Mm, I have an amazing mentor called Ajani. He's an incredible guy, King Cass. And he really helped me through my mental health process a lot. Like, to a point where I really addressed all things that I never addressed before. And he's one of the reasons why I wrote my book. And I think that book was a really big release too. To just be like, this is how I feel, this is it. So when I lost face, when I struggled, so when I was crying, when I was da 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 but I was able, and by the end of it, it's like you see this whole journey of someone going through so much brokenness, but finding so much healing. And that's why I feel like this healing now. It felt like a weight was lifted off of me to a massive degree. I felt like it was just all there. The moment I just talked about it, it was just like, whew, it's all gone. It did feel significant. So I think mental health is very significant. I think talking about it and being honest is very significant. And we should never shy away from it. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to not to be struggling with things. And I think that's one of the main things that holds me onto my faith is that I know that I need God because <laughs> otherwise I don't think I'll be able to get through the day-to-day struggles that we go through on a, day- on a normal basis. Or I don't think I'll be able to address the things that I deal with. Like me, you know, you're saying, do you feel like you do all the things that you used to? It's like, no, because I'm able to cope and, and actually confront them with faith. I'm able to say, okay, there's this depression and these thoughts that I may battle with, but what does God say about me? What does, how does the, how does God say I should feel? And what is his presence and what does spending time with him make me feel? It makes me feel different. The moment that I may pray, the moment that I will listen to gospel music, I just feel a joy. And it lifts me of all that feeling that I felt. It's like, it's completely gone. Like it wasn't even there. The moment I feel anxious, the moment I just pray, I say, God, I feel like this and I feel like that. And I, da, 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 da. The anxiety goes, cause it's like, it's out of my system now. So yeah, I think it's very significant. And I'm grateful that I was able to share that with Cass. He really helped me through that a lot, man. 
And just as a final question, Callum, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I believe that we have to give young men and old men and all men <laughs> spaces to talk, just to talk. That's what I want to provide. That's what Poor Our Son is. We don't think we need spaces where people are talking. We need spaces where people are listening. Because I feel like there's so much this culture of like, let's... Uh, quick fix solutions of how to deal with your depression or quick fix solutions to deal with this. And I don't think that's necessarily what we need to do. Even especially in faith circles. It's not always about providing answers. We're just giving spaces for people to talk and have conversations. That's what I love about Clubhouse and why I'm going to be using Clubhouse a lot more. Just have conversations. And if you can speak, speak. But a lot of times, it, like I've been putting a culture in my poor out son community. I don't talk much. I barely talk. I lead it. But I'm not that active in a group chat because I want other people to talk. It's not about, oh yeah, listen to CJ talk all day long. I might give conversations and just share my thoughts, you know, here and there. But a lot of the talks, um, other people are leading them because I don't want to just be talking all the time. I don't want it to be like, this is what I think. And I think we need that space in general, in all communities and organisations where it's just a space to listen. You know, where I just go, okay, cool, Freddie, how you feeling? And you just talk. And I just listen. And I wait till you finish, and I say, okay, cool, let's let's make a plan. And I can say how I'm feeling, say, okay, let's make a plan of how can we address these feelings. That's what we need, spaces that are honest and transparent, that are real. And I hate this culture, especially in church, of like, God is so good and God is so great, da 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 Like, we know this, but sometimes life isn't, and that's okay. And when I believe that, when I'm sharing my faith, I hope it doesn't come across as like, Ah, oh, you know, he's so Christianese or he's so churchy. I want it to be like, guys, on a serious level, I am not perfect. I haven't got it all together. But I'm generally grateful that God gets me through every day. And that's real. I'm not saying that in a corny way because I have to say it because I'm a poster boy of church. I'm not by any means. I'm generally honest that I get through every day because of God. Because Jesus is in my life. And that's what is the realest. So I think we need more space of real transparent, open places to just listen and and have discussions and talks. We have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big, big thank you to CJ for being my special guest and for letting me go behind the mic with him. I'm sure, listeners, you have enjoyed his journey and it is such a deep and inspirational one. St. CJ's track, Faith Over Feelings, featuring Dan's will play us out and I'll put CJ's streaming and social media links in the show notes if gospel is your thing and you want to find out more about his music. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Please remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family or if you're feeling very, very generous and want to support us further, please write us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or support our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash VentHelpUK. Every penny really does count. So thank you if you do want to contribute. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Faith over feeling, yeah Even in the hardest season, yeah I'll keep believing, yeah I'll be obedient, yeah Faith over feeling, yeah Even in the hardest season, yeah I'll keep believing, yeah I'll be obedient, yeah Faith over feeling, yeah Even in the hardest season, yeah I'll keep believing